Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Tracy Sorensen, is a filmmaker, writer, academic, and she's here today to talk about her first novel, The Lucky Galah. Tracy, welcome. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to just read a little bit from The Lucky Galah, just so listeners can get a sense of the book and a feel for the narrative? Okay, all right, well, I'll read this little bit. It's about halfway through the novel. The supermarket doors glided past as we approach. Momentarily, I see Lizzie and me reflected in the glass. We go down the usual aisles, Lizzie laying in supplies in case we have to stay indoors for a couple of days as the cyclone goes over. Tea leaves, a tin of evaporated milk, a bag of bird seed, a loaf of white bread, a knob of pale pink sausage called poloni, tomato sauce. It is clear others have been doing the same. The tomato sauce is getting low. The girl at the cash register, in accordance with her training, says brightly, How are you today? Lizzie ignores this, but I politely raise and lower my crest. The girl says, Hello, cocky, and puts the things into two plastic bags. Lizzie hooks her leathery forearms through the handles. Back out on the footpath, she settles the bags at her feet and organises herself a cigarette. I think about my reflection in the, in the glass doors. It always surprises me how small I am, how bird-like. I think about how, all those years ago, Harry Baumgarten hunkered down beside my cage and had a good look at me. It was, perhaps, the only time in my entire captivity that I was seen for what I truly am, a bird. An animal with wings made for flying, a beak made for crushing wild grass seed, a clacker or cloaca made for laying eggs. Dr Harry Baumgarten honoured my avian self. We pass the port hotel, glance in. There's a big crowd in there, urgent, making sure they have enough liquor or beer or wine to carry them through the storm. Dish. Stand by. Incoming rueful thoughts, Harry Baumgarten. Galah. Where is he? Dish. Anthill country. Northern Territory. Harry Baumgarten. And this is in Harry's voice. It's strange to think that I hardly knew Evan Johnson, the man who, as a thought, a stab of discomfort, would accompany me through the rest of my life. I saw him at a dinner party at his own house in Port Badminton. He seemed friendly, contained, straightforward. He shook hands, offered a beer. He introduced his wife, who waved across the room as she swept a small child off to bed. We ate crackers and drank emu bitter as we waited for the others. I was early. Will that do, or do you want to keep going? That's perfect. I mean, I'd love yeah. you to just keep going and read the entire book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Um, but that's fine. That's great. It's a great passage to begin with because it it introduces so many elements um, uh, that come into the book. I mean, the one thing that really, really struck me right from the start was the kind of a, it's almost a almost a duality there um, between, you know, the utter birdness of Lucky <laughs> yeah. and, and, and yet the humanity as well. You know, we, it, you really, um, we've all felt this sense of, you know, 
who am I? And then realizing or seeing yourself through, you know, maybe somebody else's eyes or in a mirror and going, oh, <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm getting old or I'm smaller yeah. than I thought. Or, you know, <laughs> that's and, and that's, that's such a human thing, that kind of self-awareness. And yet, you know, there is something really very bird-like <laughs> about yeah. Lucky. Oh, well, thank you because, um, yeah, I, I mean, L- Lucky is a bird. She's not just a metaphor, you know. Um, she's, she's real. She, she, she is totally avian in her physical self. She's tiny. She's got, yeah, bird, bird um, skeleton and bird feathers and a bird beak. Um, and yet she's, she's kind of, she's kind of beyond bird. She's kind of halfway between bird and human because she's lived only with humans. She doesn't really know birds that well. So birds are a kind of alien to her. So, you know, all, all she sees reflected back at her most of the time is, is human beings. And then, um, yeah, so there's just these moments like, yeah, um, like in that passage where she sees herself reflected in the in the glass. Oh, yeah, that's right. I am, in fact, a, a bird. Gee. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, I do, I, I mean, in a way, um, Lucky is a bit of an alter ego for me. Um, I guess that's fairly obvious, <laughs> um, you know, because I've spent a whole book um, writing in that voice. Um, but, you know, I feel a little bit the same um, as a human being every now and then. I think, wow, what is this? Who are we? <laughs> what am I? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I suppose um you know getting that that balance too because you know anthropomorphism is wonderful. I love it. I love it. And you know yeah. and I think it works perfectly in the book. But mm. I also think there's a kind of I don't know maybe humility um in trying to allow this bird to be a bird as well. Yes. Yes, I um you know I I really I really I, I guess it is a bit subtle in the book, or, or I don't know whether it's something that people pick up. But for me, um, this is a this is um, about this the the fact that there are these other voices and these other uh, um, forces in the world, and they're they're very powerful and they're there, but we kind of act as if they're not, you know. And it's like we we're being watched as much as we're watching, you know, and um, I did want to invoke that eco-sensibility, I guess. That's just getting stronger and stronger for me the older I get. Yes, I feel I feel exactly the same, maybe these other ways of, of living or these other forms of sentience. Yeah, yep, exactly, exactly, yeah. And, you know, for me um, uh, it's an important um, point about the novel is that as human beings, I mean, this is very grand of me, but anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll say, as human beings, you know, we've, we've, we're only just coming to grips with, um, I guess, the environment or the planet or, you know, we're only just coming to grips with the, the um, uh, fact that we share this planet, we share it. And um, it's not just about, you know, looking after the environment for our sake and the sake of human humanity's, you know, future generations, but... Um, you know, this is life. This is this is evolution that's just gone for billions of years, and um, you know, here it is. Let's 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 tune in. Yes, yes, tune in, and tune in. I mean, being of course a a fairly key theme through the book as well. Um, yeah, in many yeah. different ways, many different yeah. ways. Um, but yeah. of course, the dish. 
which yeah. in and of itself becomes almost a life force. It is, it is, yeah. Um, the, the, the dish, um, you know, there's this, there, there are these meta, uh, metaphors about tracking and tuning in and noticing and that kind of stuff, which are, um, you know, sort of emerged out of the writing. It's not like I sort of sat there and thought this stuff up at the beginning and then kind of went into it, but it, it's, it's like in the process of writing, these themes, you know, reveal themselves, you know, so I kind of realised why I was, or, you know, um, yeah, it's almost in hindsight, you know, that I, I realise I'm following certain lines of thought. But um, yeah, the dish is um, the dish is this tuning device. Yep, um, and uh, I love that. Um, at first, when I was writing it, the, I, I, I had this passage where there's someone looking at the dish and they, they they're thinking, "Wow, you know, it's almost as if it's still sending and receiving." Um, signals and a friend reading that passage said what do you mean as if and then I thought yeah right what, why as if why not go there this is a novel you go anywhere <laughs> um, so you know the, the the dish itself sprang to life um, after that conversation and actually turned out I mean it was just such a small passing conversation with this friend but it actually turned out to be um, and the essential other component for me was was it's not just the galah narrating the story but it's also this tuning device um uh you know messaging to and from the galah yes and i love this idea of a whole galah wavelength <laughs> and yeah you know this it, it's i guess this is what you mean with by as if um because yeah. It, it, there's, I guess it's like there's two things happening. One, there are definitely actual, this is just a, a story, right, about yeah. something that happened. I mean, yeah. you know, Carnivon may be forgotten, but it's, it's still transmitting, as you say. You know, it is, yeah. there is a dish there, and it was yeah. there through the Apollo landings, and it had an important involvement, and it's still there. Um, but it, on the other yeah. hand, you know, there's a kind of, um, I guess, a magic realism that you pull into the mm. book where this underlying communication is about sort of preservation of memories and vibrations and, and things that get kind of saved and then need to be released in certain ways. Yes, yes, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. Um, it is a, it is in some ways a magical realism that I go into, but on another level, as you say, there's, um, it, it actually, you know, the, the the magic is only in the way the story's told. The There's nothing about the actual events that are outside of science, you know, or material reality, um, you know, uh, um, or, or, or not, not, not even that. It's, it's um, yeah, they're just, they're, they're ordinary events that would be, you know, completely explicable um, and, and explained in, in an ordinary day-to-day -day level. But, yes, it's the, it's this magic around, um, I, I guess the magic is um, uh, it's there to uh, in, invoke, well, invoke a sense of the magic that I feel in a place like Carnarvon, um, well, not in a place like Carnarvon, in Carnarvon itself where I grew up. Um, those, those in, that being, being back in that landscape is magical, you know, for me. Um, there is something... Uh, bigger than the ordinary, you know, and it's it's very striking in a place like Carnarvon because, you know, it is a very ordinary looking town. Um, I, I have to say, um, but you know, it, 
for, for those who've lived there and really lived with that landscape and in that landscape, it is it is a magical place. And um, and I think it is that sense of there are all these stories, you know, going back millennia, held in the rocks and trees and water and in that place. Yes, I mean, I think you say this in, in some interview somewhere. Um, and it's, yeah. I think it's wonderful. Um this idea of this animistic worship of sea and sky and rock and sand, you know, being the thing that might save us. This, yes. kind of, you know, the sense of the bigger picture, the sense of our part, um, rather than, you know, as, as overlords, but rather that we are part of a, you know, a much bigger system. Yeah, I think and we space, have space to... too, yeah. because that comes yeah. in. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I mean, this is where I, I, I become a little bit evangelical. Um, you know, um, go for it. <laughs> evangelical animist is, is that a thing? Um, yeah, I, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, have opinions and participate in normal political life, but I think it's essential that we, uh, that that we start to develop a different sensibility um, because, um, you know, we're 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 really looking at potentially ruining um, this one and only planet, you know, in all sorts of different ways we're kind of working on that. Um, you know, so a sensibility that kind of um, uh, reaches out and, you know, without knowing everything about every grasshopper or, 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 or ant or, or thing, but just, just to kind of have that sensibility that this is a, that this is a living a living planet and yes we are we are absolutely just part of it we we eat and can be eaten we're part of this food chain um there's the wonderful um sequence in the book by the eco writer um academic val plumwood where she's talking about being um taken by a crocodile she's on her kayak and the crocodile in the northern territory and the crocodile tips her over and is kind of putting her in this death roll because he's about to, you know, um, eat her. And she she has this sudden moment where, you know, she thought she was Val and then she looks into the eye of the crocodile and she realises, actually, I'm just dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's that kind of sensibility that I guess I'm, I'm working with or, or, or hoping, hoping to further in this little way through this novel. Yes, I think it comes through quite clearly. But, you know, that that and and combined with this notion of memories that get preserved. And, you know, you talked about Carnarvon being kind of magical in that way. But I think for anybody who's been away from home and then who mm. goes back, there is that little ma- magic. It's, it's exactly what happens with this, you know, incoming on the dish, <laughs> that there are things that seem, for us, perhaps coming from us, not maybe endemic in the land itself yes. a kind of preservation of some you know memories of who we were yes. and so there is a little bit of that kind of magic of, of what we know of the place and what it conjures for us in scent you know a sensual thing in 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 the smells that we feel when we're walking around or just the, the touch of things it's very subtle because maybe almost not linguistic but I think you pick that up as well yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I. Uh, it's that's exactly how it works. Yeah, and I guess we all we we think of the what what is it, Proust's Madeleines yes, or whatever exactly. they are. You know that kind of incredible moment where yeah, and it's true. It's beyond words. It's just this kind of feeling. Um, there's 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 memory, and it's 
it's it's back. It's it's embodied. It's not even kind of something you're reaching for, but suddenly you're sort of in in there again. You know, you've been you're you're in. Yeah, it's the the the, the memory is suddenly the present as yes. well. You know, you it's a collapse of time. Yeah, which is um. Which is an amazing feeling. I love it, and I'm, I'm a little bit addicted to it now because um, when <laughs> I just, you know, it, it was years and years before I went back to Carnarvon, and then I, you know, every time I go back, it's like this almost guaranteed hit. It's like a guaranteed Madeline. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, it's a good way of thinking about going home. Probably gets you through some of the things that are a little less Madeline, or that have the same effect, yeah. but not such a positive one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> all those irritations you'd forgotten. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you know, you know, I say all this magic, you know, this is like me at this age, you know, looking back nostalgically. Um, so much of my life in Carnarvon as a teenager was about boredom and frustration and anger and irritation and waiting, waiting just to get the hell out of here. You know? yes. And <laughs> so I think you pick that up funny. too. Yeah. You, you yeah. certainly pick that up in, you know, in yeah. terms of this notion of the outsider coming in and, you know, yes. It, you know what it's like to be I guess moving into a small town and you know experiencing that the claustrophobia yeah. of it mm. yeah all these elements you know that have come into it um and, and it's I think the the Galah narration um you know maybe it's a a fabulous fabulous gimmick because it's you know it's immediately you think oh that's a great idea <laughs> you know but <laughs> Um, all of these things are really, um, they, they all come together in this kind of, you, nobody would come up, I don't know how you'd come up with, um, just <laughs> off the cuff, the idea that, you know, Galah and the dish and the Apollo landings and, you know, all of these elements coming together, they're kind of um, odd bedfellows that, that <laughs> still come together and work and pick up on all these threads. But I imagine when you started writing this, I mean, what were your, you know, initial elements? Did did any this is did this all unfold as you were working on it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first the the first glimmerings of this story were, um, I mean, I do I do a lot of people say they write from character. I, I write a little. I write somewhat from character, but characters for me do emerge from, I guess, ideas. So I, I'm I'm working back from backwards from ideas in a way, and then the characters get going, and then I work forwards again from the characters. You know, so they're they're going backwards and forwards like that. But the image I had was of this falling man. This, um, you know, and in um. Yeah, yeah, the idea of the fall, and there was this word I was really interested in called uh, prelapsarian, you know, before the fall. And I was thinking, originally I was thinking of this um, tracking station family living up near the um, dish on the hill um, and and kind of some kind of tragedy or problem happening, so they kind of fall down through the classes, you know, they, they, they have a you know, they they have status and a certain amount of wealth and then something terrible happens and they end up, you know, down um, in the town and, um, um, you know, there's been some kind of fall. And, I mean, that, these, 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 were just, these were just ideas that were percolating and then, um, but, you know, I grew up in Carnarvon and we had a galah out in the backyard and there was the dish up on the hill. And so I'm, I'm writing this story, which was, you know, originally much more conventionally conceived story about 
you know, some tracking station people who came to town for the moon landing. Um, but all these elements were, were there because they were, you know, they were in the landscape of my memory. They were available to me. So it's like, you know, it's almost like, okay, here's, here's the things. There they are, you know, laid out in front of me. How are you going to bring them all together? Um, I wasn't even that conscious, but it was those those elements just started to emerge, you know, out of out of the writing process, com- combined with my own memories. And then um, fortuitously, Google, because Google, uh, you know, you can you can be on this weird sort of train of thought and then just kind of type something into Google and um, get more information about it. So, for example, the camels. Camels <laughs> um, are a bit of a thing in the novel, not a huge thing, but they're there. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to find out more about camels from Google. So it's kind of like, yeah, memory, um, ideas, Google, all coming together and swirling around. Yes. And you said on book, the Booktopia podcast that the turning point for the book was when you hooked up with Charlotte Wood, <laughs> yeah. um, who encouraged the madness. So was that at Varuna? Uh, it wasn't at Varuna, but it was a direct result of Varuna. Um, I don't know if your listeners are aware of Varuna. Maybe they are by now because so many um, so many writers praise it to the skies. But, um, Somewhere yeah, and I, some won't be, yeah. Yeah, so Writers' Centre in, in the Blue Mountains in Katoomba. Um, yeah, Charlotte was one of the early people who went to Varuna in its early days and I went um, much later for my residency. But um, uh, it was through Varuna that... Um, I knew about um, Charlotte and um, also her sister lives here in Bathurst. Um, so there's a few connections happening there. Um, but, yeah, Varuna, uh, uh, Charlotte, um, she both encouraged the madness and also made me really focus things down. So we had this image of the Tupperware container. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what she said to me was you need a single container because it Originally, the novel was sprawling in all directions um, and, uh, and you know, I had events going all the way through the 70s and, you know, kind of this much more sprawling kind of thing. And she, she encouraged me to really focus it into a particular um, moment. And so it, 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 she, she really helped me kind of just... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I imagined it as, as putting putting things in this Tupperware container and anything that doesn't fit in the container has to go. So whole big sections of it just fell away. Um, but fortunately, what didn't fall away was the madness. <laughs> she was, she was um, you know, for her, madness is just a normal part of writing, so that's great. <laughs> and do, do you feel, I mean, uh, and I ask this just for selfish reasons, yeah. um, but do you feel that the writing retreat itself kind of encouraged the freedom that allowed you to go just a few steps further? Uh, yes, I think so. I Yes, yes. It was sitting at Varuna that, um, you know, you just go the hell anywhere. Yeah, that's true. You're taken out of your normal life. Someone's feeding you um, dinner every night, so you're not thinking about cooking. You're not thinking about anything else to do with your life. You're just sitting there and you're being, um, you know, gleefully encouraged by everyone around you that you meet in the evenings over dinner um, to go anywhere, do anything. Yeah, I think I think a writing retreat is a fabulous idea. Yes, and I guess uh, you know just to 
to get away from the world and look at your book in a kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of free from all the day-to-day distractions. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's magic. And, and in fact, I'm not one of those people who, you know, I just, I just look with such envy at people who get up and they go from five till nine every day. Okay. I write for four hours a day, you know, and I have this process. I do this thing regularly every day. My life is just so not like that. And when I have done the big slabs of writing has been, um, outside of my normal life. So it's just like, you know, um, I, you know, I've been somewhere else. I can't, I, I can't seem to do. Ser- it's a sad thing to say, but it's very hard to do serious writing or serious lengths of writing that get anywhere um, within my day-to-day life. So yeah, I can edit and go back over things and fiddle with things, um, you know, at my normal desk. But the flights of fancy, uh, yeah, take place um, outside of my own life. Yeah. <laughs> so so going back to Carnarvon, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a bit of an astro nerd, but I had no idea that it existed even. <laughs> was Adisha's yeah. involvement in Apollo 11 landings kind of a part of local history? Was, you know, that's something that you kind of grew up being aware of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I will say the particular dish that you see when you drive into Carnarvon, it's, it's on the landscape, it's a giant object it's stunning um that particular one didn't do the relay with the apollo um moon landing mission um what so what i've done in the novel is i've, I've kind of collapsed all the different bits of equipment that were sitting up on that on that um sand dune into sort of one object um so anyway but um but yeah the, the spirit of the thing is absolutely true what 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 happened was um the uh, yeah, Carnarvon was a tracking station. So 1964, um, you know, not not that long after the Kennedy Declaration that they were going to go to the moon, um, it gets set up in Carnarvon, and um, so the tracking station work goes right through the moon landing in '69 and to the subsequent moon um, um, landings afterwards. Um, yeah, and. It's it's so much um, part of the fabric of Carnarvon. This um, because you see it, you know. I mean, it's always in line of sight. This mm. dish is is sitting there in your line of sight, and you know, it's a pretty flat kind of um, landscape. And then there's this sand dune, you know. So you, yeah, it's kind of watching over you <laughs> the whole time. So yeah, absolutely growing up um, with that. Um, you know, yeah, yes, in in, in my line of sight, yeah. So did you feel it was kind of percolating back then <laughs> that you were thinking, that, well, you know, and why Parks? You know, I, I know Parks was directly involved, but um, everybody knows about that. It, it must have seemed like this was something that needed to be explored. Yeah, well, that's right. I think because Parks continued um, to be an active um, an active station, and, you know, it's still very active now, so, so it's had an unbroken, um, you know, technical um you know, job of work. It's just it's been it's been working the whole time. Whereas um, Carnarvon was kind of decommissioned in the early seventies, and so it kind of um, faded from view. Um, and the you know not not for Carnarvon, I mean people in Carnarvon never forget it, but the the the, the wider world um, you know forgot that Carnarvon was such an important part of the whole story. And um, Carnarvon was um, incredibly important. It was the um, 
it was the it was the it gave the signal for the astronauts to break away from um, you know orbiting the Earth and to head for the Moon. So it's like you know that that signal came from Carnarvon. So um, yeah, and it, yeah, it was it was just a very important part of the um, tracking. Um, uh, business around the world that was kind of, you know, working on the, on the, on the communications with the astronauts. Um, yeah, and Carnarvon certainly hasn't forgotten that, and and it now has a museum, a space museum, at the foot of the dish. Took a long time to get going, but finally it's there. And um, yeah, there's fascinating bits and pieces in that museum, um, you know, because a lot of the stuff was actually buried, literally buried in the sand dune when it all got decommissioned um, because, you know, it was like, what do we do with this stuff? Oh, well, it's too expensive to transport it or do anything with it. So it just kind of got buried, literally. Um, so people have dug up things out of the sand dune and dusted them off and put them in this museum and kind of carefully labelled them. This is this is the console that did this and that. Um, yeah, so it's... It's now celebrated and a tourist attraction in Carnarvon. Mm. So the, the whole idea, I guess, and, and this is another parallel that I think exists in the book really beautifully, subtly but beautifully, is mm-hmm. the idea of, um, you know, I, I, I think we maybe everybody who was involved or who was around during the moon landings or who was conscious of them is a little surprised that we, you know, we never really we didn't go back, <laughs> that we haven't returned astronauts to the moon or, you know, gone yeah. to Mars, that it wasn't the beginning of anything, really. Mm. Um, it might have been the beginning of something, but it never progressed um, in terms of human space travel. I mean, obviously there are reasons for that. But I guess one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, there's a certain aspect of space travel which is, you know, unsafe. And that unsafeness and that's one of the reasons, probably one of the most understandable reasons. Obviously, they're political things. But um, the idea of, of sort of wildness and unsafeness or risk versus like the daily comforts, like a bicky and a cuppa, you know. Yeah. I think that's, again, something that's a little bit paralleled in terms mm. of Lucky and, and Lucky's, you know, impetus to wildness versus, no, I'll just, you know, I can't. I, 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 I had opportunities to fly, but I didn't. You know, I'm, yes. I, I love Lizzie and I'll just I'll have a cuppa and shred some books. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We settle into things. Yeah, I guess I guess I don't have a, a line on that, you know, like a political line on it. Like I have a very evangelical feeling about the environmental awareness or sensibility thing. With this space race, I guess I'm kind of, um, I, I, I see it, I, I'm just playing with those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and not really coming to any particular conclusion because, I mean, I guess as a child of the space race myself, um, that never goes away, this incredible wonder and incredible um, oh, just in, just sense of awe over, you know, humanity being able to lift itself off the planet, you know, and go somewhere else is incredible and I can't help but get really excited about the um, idea of the Mars missions you know, um, that, that are oncoming, bizarre sort of um, reality TV strategy for raising enough money to get to Mars. Yes, to test <laughs> um, space. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, you know, there's uh, there's all that wonder. Then, 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 um, then I guess there's this other sense of, um, you know, but... Uh, um, well, our own planet is so endangered and there's so many 
problems here? Should we be spending that kind of money and time going there? But then on the other hand, it's like you couldn't tell people not to. You know, it's like that would be a pointless thing because there is some fundamental thing about wanting to stretch out and be uncomfortable. That is such a drive, uh, such a driver for, um, you know, for creativity and for human life. And I guess, I guess in a way, you know, um, that, that that's a daily struggle. I'm just, I'm just kind of, my mind's just leaping onto different things here. But I'm just thinking, in some ways, that was. That's part of was part of my struggle even writing the novel. I was quite comfortable just endlessly writing this thing, um, you know, bit by bit, and um, you know, it was a little hobby on the side and that kind of stuff. And you know, there's a comfy life. It was an incredible um, risk for me to finally, finally, and with Charlotte's help, really, um, really just stretch out on a limb and say, I really want to get this thing published really 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 like I've been saying it before but it was like am I going to take that terrible risk of rejection you know and yeah you know lucky that that part of lucky that wants to just sit on the table and eat bickies with Lizzie you know that's me you know I have I think that's all of us to a certain extent which is again why the why the book you know speaks so well to to everyone we 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 are all a little bit like lucky. Yeah, <laughs> our wings yeah. And... yeah, yeah. So you can fly, but you know, uh, you know, like, do I really want to fly? Yeah. I mean, lucky, lucky can't fly. You know, so in a sense, her fortunes are. You know, she's she's got a really good excuse. Um, in some ways, her wing has been clipped. But then, you know, she does say, well, at different other times, maybe I could have, you know, um, flown. So you know, she's she has let that. She's she's kind of bitterly. Um, angry about the mammalian flight, you know, to the moon and, and, you know, people being able to fly. She's bitter about that. But at the same time, she kind of understands that she did sort of choose the Bicky and tea um, over her own little opportunities in the past. Yes. Yeah, so mm. we're nearly out of time, but um, okay. I'm sure if anybody who hasn't read the book yet is now dying to. Um, where can we just go to find out more about you? And, and where, can, where, can, where can people find out more about me? Yeah, about the book, about, about your book. other projects, your films, <laughs> etc. Yeah, I do. I do have a website www.squawkandgalar.com.au. Um, so that's my that's my website, and um, you know the book is the book is out there. Um, yeah, the book is out there. It's on Booktopia. It's in all good bookshops across the land. Um, yeah, so um, it would be it would be fabulous if you go out and grab a copy. Do do so, readers. You will <laughs> thank me later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tracy, thank you so much for coming by to talk to me, um, and uh, good luck with the ongoing success of the book and future projects. I'm sure we'll have you back again. Thank you so much. That's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for that. Thanks. <laughs>